Hey everyone, and welcome back. We have a very special episode for you. You are about to hear from an Emmy Award winner, a Grammy Award winner, and guru of the television composing world, Mike Post. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Michelle Shudler. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a collection that is over 3,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of our other interviews that aren't featured today, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Hey, you guys, I'm really happy about this uh, episode today. We're going to be playing the uh, full and complete interview that we had with Mike Post. I'm really super psyched about it. Me too, because I'm a huge fan of Law & Order. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the guy who gave us a ton of television theme songs. But what's really interesting to me, and I think the compelling part of this story, is the back part of it, the backstory of his background, his passion for music, the fact that he's been playing in bands ever since he was a kid, uh, the fact that he had access to a lot of different opportunities over the years and decided to stick with his craft, uh, something he was extra interested in, and that is writing theme songs and the music for television programs. How many programs has he been on? A lot. Yeah. In fact, Mike was listing them. You want to list a few of them? I can try. I know Law and Order, Magnum PI, NYPD something. Blues. Uh, there we go. Yep. yep. Rockford Files, LA Law, Quantum Leap, Hill Street Blues, the A Team. We forgot that oh, one. Oh, yeah. And the one I remember as a kid, and the, the only uh, comedy that I could think of, it's certainly no other comedies on that particular list, was from uh, Blossom. Oh, yeah, very nice. Mm-hmm. I had a crush on her best friend, Six. But anyway, <laughs> Mike is awesome. I mean, even after the interview, uh, he's been at the NAMM show a couple of times. He's been a very strong supporter of this program, helped us uh, secure some other interviews over the years. So in general, uh, it's a real honor to be associated with him and have his story as part of our collection. So today we just thought, let's let the whole thing ride and we'll just uh, play the complete interview. So here he is, Mike Post. Thanks so much for having us over, Mike. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. You know, one of the things I'd love to talk to you about is your passion for music and how that developed. Did you have a lot of music in your house when you were a kid? Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, the passion's one word that we could use. I don't think it's the correct word for me. I don't think uh, path or passion or or your calling or none of those words seem to you know connect with what I feel much Um, you know it isn't a vocation it isn't an advocation it's not a hobby certainly I think the best word the word that comes closest although it's not perfect is obsession so growing up you know my first memories are all connected to music you know really real young and uh, 
My mom and dad were huge appreciators. Neither one played, but they were huge appreciators. And so there was music go going constantly and real varied. You know, it wasn't just classical music and it wasn't just whatever was popular in their consciousness. You know, there was a lot of um, variety. Uh, and it, I think it served me really well as a young kid. So, um, and then, you know, when I was six, I sat down at a piano at my aunt's house and I can remember it really well because we, we were living up north at the time in San Francisco and uh, we came down to LA to visit and my aunt had a piano. And before that, I wasn't really consciously aware of any piano except a player piano. You know, it had rolls in it. Someone in the neighborhood had one of those. And I sat down at the piano and it had a mirror behind the keyboard and it was upholstered. <sighs> Jewish people, you know, I don't know. What can I tell you? You know, at any rate, my Aunt Gertie came over and I was, you know, just plucking around. And she said, Michael, this is C. I went, okay. You know, D, E, all the way up to the next C. That's an octave. I went, oh, okay. She goes, so this is C, this is E, and this is G. And if you play them together, it's called a chord or a triad. And I went, bing, bing, bing. And I went, oh, that's what I've been hearing. And it was like someone saying, this is black and that's sort of gray. And it just, I went, oh, well, I know what that, I know that. And now there's a name for that, you know. And she goes, and if you want to make it minor, you flat the E, you flat the third. And I, oh, I know that, of course I know that, you know. And it was just, it was like a light bulb going on in, in the dark room, you know. So I, I could, and I, I didn't know I was going to do it for the rest of my life. And I, you know, nothing like that. I'm a little kid, but it was... I knew it, somehow I knew it was seminal. I knew it was important, you know, crossroads for sure. Mm. Very cool. Yeah. So did you play other instruments as a kid? No, not at first. Uh, you know, I just started, I asked my mom if I could take piano lessons. And my grandmother wanted to take piano lessons at the same time. This is after we moved down here about six months later. And I said, you know, I'd like to take piano lessons. And, so, you know, money was tight in our house. We were definitely middle-class, you know, family from the San Fernando Valley. And, you know, growing up, I heard two things. We love you and we can't afford it, <laughs> you know, so, which was fine. You know, I didn't, we weren't poor or anything and, you know, but so she goes, well, let me talk to your grandma. Toots is my, was my grandmother's name. Her, that's what all the grandchildren called her. And she was the matriarch of our family. And in all the children that were my age, so, so let's see, one, two, uh, three, four, nine, you know, it's like eight of us, right? Every one of us always thought we were her favorite. So she was something. I mean, she was really something. And so she wanted to take piano lessons at the same time. She found a teacher and she got me a piano from a relative of her husband. 
And this guy was a concert pianist, and this little piano was a little upright, what they call a studio model, small upright, and she gave it to me. And I still have it. And it was, boy, was that, you know, a big deal. So I played piano and learned to read and, you know, was proper, properly on my way to a legit sort of an education. She was a classical teacher, and, but she was smart. And she knew that I was sort of uh, already, you know, kind of breaking rules and doing, you know, I'd, I'd read it once and hear it, you know, and, kind of, and then I'd, the second time I'd kind of read it, and the third time I'd be just playing it, you know, and she goes, are you reading? Oh, yes, you know, and, you know. So she knew that I was, you know, a little bit weird to start with, you know. So I kept the piano and kept the lessons up for about two years and then quit the lessons for baseball. So I really wanted to play baseball, but I never stopped playing. And I basically could play most of what I could hear. You know, certainly some, you know, classical music or jazz or something. I was, you know, but everything I heard, especially folk music and stuff that my mom and dad were listening to. And, you know, I listened, they had a, they had a mono record player and I used to just sit as close to that speaker, lie on the floor, and it was part of the television and everything else, you know. Listen to just the weirdest, most eclectic stuff, you know, Grand Canyon Suite, uh, you know, pictures at an exhibition, you know, and then uh, Ella Fitzgerald and, and a lot of folk music. They, they liked Dixieland, they were huge Dixieland fans, so I listened to, you know, Turk Murphy and, you know, the Europe Buena Jazz Band and all these just weird but good, really good stuff. And, and then when, you know, maybe 14, I remember the jukebox at this miniature golf course right near Laurel and, and Ventura Boulevard. And maybe this was earlier, this might have been 12 or 13. And I heard Blueberry Hill, I heard Rollover Beethoven, um, and Maybelline, and the original Bo Diddley. And I was, and it had a, it was, the speakers were a little torn up, so everything was breaking up a little bit, and, you know, and I just went, whatever that is, I have to know how to do that. I can remember just going, okay, I'm going home and figure this part out. So, you know, I had a little 45 changer, you know, and it plugged into my radio. And I just started buying records and trying to figure out what the hell they were doing. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> didn't, didn't start really playing guitar at all. It was just piano at the time. And uh, it was later that I sort of started to look around for other instruments. So who were some of the teachers? Did you have teachers in the school system? Or no. private teachers at all? No. no. I had nothing to do with any... Um, you know, anything in school because it was all classical and they maybe tolerated jazz, but they hated rock and roll. I graduated from high school in 62. So from 57, that, that six years, five years in there, it was us and them. And 
you know, I, I had no encouragement from anybody, any teachers. I just had encouragement from other kids and my parents and, and myself, you know. I mean, I, I didn't know, you know, I didn't, it's not like I knew 100% for sure that I was going to do this, you know, for the rest of my life or that I would be any good at it, you know. I mean, I, just, I thought I might, you know. I, I was stupid enough to think I could, you know, but uh, certainly there wasn't a matrix by which um, a non-classical kid could come up and blossom. Now there is, obviously. Yeah, so we're listening to uh, Mike Post and his interview for the NAM Oral History Project today, and it's really awesome to hear uh, the early days, you know, talking just about how his thoughts were um, get gathering, how do I make money, how do I, you know, put my love for music into a career, and just how that whole thing got started. We're going to hear a little bit more about how he got into bands coming up. And then some of the other things that I've always been interested in, uh, access to music stores and just how it was for him having access to instruments and so on. And then, of course, meeting some people that were influential on his career. So uh, without further ado, you guys have anything else you want to add? I pretty much covered it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's jump back into the interview with Mike Post. I was 15 and it was the first teenage nightclub. So it was really an Italian restaurant that had beer and wine, but you could go in there underage because it really was a restaurant and they had a band. And I walked in and I saw a guy named Troy Walker. It was this flaming gay guy, piano player, good piano player. And there was a guitar player named Dale Holcomb, and I forget who was playing drums. And I just went, I know everything they're doing. I actually know all those changes. I know everything they're doing. So I hung around for a while, you know, being a dancer with friends and stuff. And maybe the second or third time I went in, I went and talked to this guitar player named Dale Holcomb. And he was from Texas. And he was just a great guy and pretty educated, you know, knew a lot of chords and, you know, knew a lot of standards, which I didn't know a lot of. And so, so we got to talk and I told him I was a piano player. And so he befriended me, was my first big brother in the music business. And we got together, he was living on Wilcox between uh, Hollywood and, you know, uh, Franklin, and, you know. And uh, he was probably 24 at the time. And about three weeks later, they changed bands. They went to a band called Frankie Knight and the Jesters. And I decided to go to the rehearsal. And I went to the rehearsal, and Dale was playing guitar for him now. There was a bass player and a drummer. No piano player. Piano's there. And I'm sitting just watching. And the lead singer was a guy named Frankie Knight. His real name was Frankie Nabayan from, from uh, uh, down, in, uh, uh, down by the harbor, right? half Filipino, half Portuguese, five foot, one inches tall. The smallest man in the history of the 82nd Airborne. Hell of a guy. And good singer too. 
and they were working on a song called Guilty that was a hit for a guy that later became a really big producer named Jerry Fuller, writer-producer, produced Gary Puckett and the Union Gap and blah, 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 blah. Well, I knew the song, and they started to play it, and they were all playing the wrong changes. So I don't know how I had the balls, but I, after Frankie kept saying, I don't think that's right, you know, and oh yeah, that's what it's supposed to. I said, actually, guys, here's the changes. And I walked up to the piano and I played it. And Frankie kind of went, what's your name? And I said, Mike. And he said, wow, why don't you play with us? And I said, on this tune? He goes, well, we'll see what else you know. So they went from there. I said, you know Blueberry Hill? And I went, bam, bam, boo, da, 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 you know. And then, whew. And then we went to, you know, this and that. I knew everything. I know all those songs, you know. So he's, after this little half hour of rehearsal, and Dale's smiling at me and laughing and going great. And Frankie comes over and says, would you like the gig? And I said, how many nights a week are you playing? So, and we're playing Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And I said, yeah, I got to talk to my mom and dad and make sure it's okay. And he said, it's $15 a night plus dinner, five sets, 45 on, 15 off. I went, I said, I might have a little problem on Friday nights. He goes, why? I said, I might be late some of the time. He goes, why? I said, well, if it's an away football game, I'm on a football team. And if it's an away football game, and he went, I said, you know, I mean, I'm committed, you know, so. <laughs> so I started the gig, and, and uh, you know, maybe the next to the last game of the season, I busted this finger, and I had a couple of stitches here, and I'm all just beat up, you know. And I show up, all just banged up, and he looked at me, and he goes, you're, you're a pretty good musician. He says, I don't, do you think there's a future for you in football, you know? I said, well, at 5'8 and 165 pounds, I guess not, you know. <laughs> He goes, why don't you just leave? I said, well, I got one more game. And, you know, okay, great. Into football. <laughs> so I played with them, and we went all over the place. And I was now 16, so I could drive to the gig. And it, it was great. I learned so much. I learned so much. From Dale and from just being up on stage playing. And it was, it was great. It was so much fun. Yeah. I was going to ask you when you were growing up during that time, were there music stores that you went to? Absolutely. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Wallach's Music City, Sunset and Vine. You know, just used to go in there and go into these booths to listen to records. And um, There was a place in the valley called House of Sight and Sound where I rode my bike when I was, the first album I ever bought, I think I was 10, maybe 11, and it was the first Johnny Cash album on Sun. You know, as I walk the line and, you know, Folsom Prison Blues, all that stuff, you know, Get Rhythm, Hey Porter, you know, <laughs> you know, and what a joy later in life to, yeah, I met Johnny and all, but, but, you know, I became really good friends with Sam Phillips and Knox Phillips, who I'm still dear friends with in Memphis, and I've recorded Phillips' recording a number of times. I mean, to ride my bike up there, you know, and have that album, that album changed my life. I mean, a lot of albums changed my life, but that was definitely one of them. I went, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. This, the feel of this is just monstrous, you know. And I got the, 
I got such an education in Larry Nechtel, to me, the, the greatest, most talented, single most ta multi-talented studio musician I've ever worked with in my life, once said to me, we were riding around in my car doing something together, and I made a comment about, God, it feels good. He looked at me, he goes, you know, how, how does it not feel good? It, it, it feels good automatically. Now, can you play it in tune and in time? He goes, all of those things, you know, and it triggered a, a, a discussion about our backgrounds. He had been in a band called the Mass Phantoms Band out of Ilmani Legion Stadium, and they were playing all these dances, and he was three, four years older than me, and, and it just became really apparent to me that all the guys at a certain level feel good. I mean, it's like, can I breathe? Yeah, I can breathe. Well, I can, I can, you know, I hopefully, I can make any music feel good. Hopefully, I mean, that's the gig, isn't it? I mean, that's the deal. So, that that education, I wouldn't trade for anything because I was working, getting paid, all the side benefits of it, feeling good about myself and then learning so many changes and hearing so much different music, you know. And cool. So how did your uh, professional career develop then? Well, they were paying me at, at 16. So I joined the union at maybe 16 or 17. Dale took over the, a group called the Hollywood Argyles for the road, not, it was all studio guys, you know, but, so he went out on the road, Kim Fowley was doing something else, and so Dale became the leader of the Hollywood Argyles, hired me to go out on the road, I'm 16 years old, and my parents knew Dale and trusted him and said, look, you know, and, uh, you know, just shoot real straight with you. The next biggest crossroads, aside from sitting down at that piano when I was six, or getting the gig with Frankie Knight, or, or knowing Dale Holcomb, or any of this kind of thing. The next big crossroads was, I said, hey, can I go out for this Christmas vacation with the Hollywood Argyles? We're gonna go here, here, all over the West, you know, up to Colorado, to Wyoming, to, you know, uh, six guys in a, in a station wagon towing a U-Haul trailer, perfect. Uh, and the only thing they said was say, okay, look, we don't know anything uh, you know, this is now 1959. We don't know any, or maybe 60. We don't know anything about drugs. We just know that most jazz musicians smoke a lot of marijuana. And, and you know, you're too young for any of that kind of stuff. Just, just don't do that. Make that decision later. You know, I already didn't drink. You know, I mean, I wasn't a drinker or anything. And. There were a couple of guys on that tour were taking, you know, uppers or this or that or anything, and I just had promised my parents, and they were so kind to me and so good to me, I just couldn't break my word. So I got used to saying no, and I also got to see that the first set would be just smoking. Man, we'd really be playing good. Everybody would go outside, half of them would get high, and come back in. The second set would feel different. It would sound different, not as precise a little ragged, maybe better in some respect because it, maybe it laid back more, it was a little bit funkier in some small respects. 
third set was a disaster. You know, and I kept going, guys were screwing up the music to get loaded. It's, it's kind of bullshit. You know, I mean, we're here. Yeah, the chicks are great and the, the, the money's good and the traveling's hot and I say, oh yeah. We're here for the music, aren't we? That's why I'm here, you know. And it set me on a path that has served me really well. You know, I've been doing enough funerals. I, I've been, I've seen people just, you know, my best friend growing up and after the third week with Frankie Knight and the Jesters, uh, there was a kid at my high school a year younger than me named Jim Gordon and I said hey Jimmy you come you gotta be, we're looking for a drummer you gotta get paid yeah and so we we grew up together and you know it just I don't know if you know the story of Jim Gordon it just decimated his life you know he ended up murdering his mom and paranoid schizophrenic he's still up in Vacaville or, or California men's colony you know and I testified against him in his murder trial, and, and, and I told the judge, I, I said, look, here's the deal. There were two guys, a piano player and a drummer, and if anybody was more talented out of those two, it was a drummer. This guy was unbelievable. And I said, and we made a pact not to do any drugs. I kept the pact, he didn't. He's sitting over there, I'm sitting here. And what can I tell you? So, at any rate, I, that was a huge crossroads for me. No drugs, none. A alcohol. Uh, sparingly, but yeah. When did you meet this guy? Lindley? I met him on a thing called the Pepsi Hoot Nanny. <laughs> I had, I was I was in a group called the Wellenbrook Singers. There was another guy that was on that uh, on that tour as well, named Terry Williams, who became one of the first guys in the first edition that I arranged and produced. And uh, Lindley was just a monster at 18. He, he was scary, monster instrumentalist at 18. Could just play anything. Really well. Really well. Still a friend of mine. Good guy. Yeah, good guy. That's very cool. Yep. Great player, I mean. So what was, the, what was that era like for you when you describe as a musician the, the, the clubs and the music scene and the competition, the other bands around and stuff. I mean, what was that like for you? I never felt any competition. I always felt brotherhood. Uh, and that's the truth because there were places like the Sea Witch on Sunset Boulevard where we'd go after hours and everybody play with everybody. And, and we were the rock and rollers, Pat and Lolly Vegas and, you know, us and, you know, just everybody was in everybody's band. Everybody, we were just all maniacs, you know, Don Peak and Mike Rabini and, you know, Michelle Rabini. But, you know, those were my friends, you know, those were my big brothers. And they were all very protected of me because I was so young and I looked even younger than I was. You know, I looked like a little baby and... Um, they were kind to me. People were not, there was none of this kind of like, you know, talking crap about each other. Everybody was just so happy to have a gig and happy to, man, are we in the band? Are we in the band? I mean, are you shitting me? We get to do this all the time and then they feed us and pay us and there might be women? I mean, my God, you know, this is, you know. So it was, 
you know, I, I, I'm trying to, to not uh, be too enthusiastic, but inside, I'm 72 years of age, I still feel exactly the same way, it, precisely. It's like, are you kidding? This is the greatest thing that could ever happen. I mean, to, to eat, sleep, breathe this, and to be able to make a living doing this and have people like what you're doing or invite you to do it again? I mean, oh, Jesus, are you kidding? So that's what it was like. It was fun. And it was, it was a little bit like being, um, I'll give you a parallel. One day, we all cut school. I was not quite 16 or maybe just 16. About four carloads of kids in February. We had a heat wave. And so everybody looked at everybody at lunch and went, and we all just hauled ass. And we went to the beach. And we had watermelons with you know, vodka poured in them and all kinds of other crazy shit. And I'm riding with a buddy of mine who played football with me, or I played football with him, named Jim Manning, who had just moved from western Pennsylvania, McKeesport, Pennsylvania. And we're in a car, and we're going over Malibu Canyon. And he had a 56 Pontiac. And there's girls and guys, and we're all just having fun. And he looked at me, he goes, you know, you, you can't appreciate this being a California kid. He goes, this is what they're making those movies about. This is, and you're living it. And I said, well, so are you. He goes, yeah, last year I was in McKeesport, Pennsylvania, freezing my ass off, you know. And he goes, you, you, well, that's what the music scene was like. I can remember getting off a plane at the Sea Witch, going to the Pancake House on, across from Hollywood High, because it was open all night, and eating pancakes and then somehow meandering back up to Hollywood Boulevard in somebody's car and the sun's just coming up. And it was, it's like that James Taylor song, you know, Hey Mister, It's Me Up on the Jukebox. I went, I'm on Hollywood Boulevard, the sun's coming up, I've been playing music since seven o'clock. Wow, there might be a place for me in this. I might have a place in this deal. And it, it and, and it, it dawned on me that I was at the center of the universe, that I, I wasn't in Des Moines, you know, playing at a Holiday Inn. I was in L.A. And, you know, I, 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 the next thing I knew, you know, I'm on a Sunny and Cher dates, and I'm, you know, it's, it's really, I'm on the radio, you know, as a musician. You know, it's, it's funny. Uh, Johnny Williams is a good friend of mine, and he's 12 years older than me. But he's represented by the same guys. I've known him forever. My, my late partner, Pete, and he were very good friends. And Pete introduced me to Johnny, you know, when Johnny was really just starting to happen as a film composer. And Johnny and I have done a, a few dog and pony shows together where it's like, okay, here's the TV guy. Okay, here's the film guy, you know. And, and I'm, I'm very flattered to even be in the same you know, chapter, much less the same paragraph with the guy. But he feels exactly like me. 
Exactly. He was. He went to North Hollywood High. I went to Grant. You know, he's a jazzer. I'm a rock and roller that can read, write, and orchestrate and conduct. And and he knows it. And 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 there was never any prejudice about you know. Well, you don't have a degree from Eastman or Juilliard or something. It was. And neither does he. He has a degree the same way I got a degree from listening, private lessons and trying really hard and wanting something really bad and being obsessed with how you do it and learning how to do it. And he, and he feels exactly like I do. He goes, is that any good? Did they, did they like that? What, do the guys like it? Did the guys like it? Do I get to do this again? You know, forget all the accomplishments because it's just about what are you going to play next? <laughs> you know, what are you going to write next? You know, so I, I, it's amazing, but he and I don't feel like we're at the top of anything. Yet, I guess we are, but what's important is that we're in the band. We're still in the band. I went to see him. <laughs> About a month ago at Hollywood Bowl, do the Star Wars deal, and I, I hate backstage because I'm a snob and feel that I shouldn't stand back there uncomfortable like everybody else going, oh, what does he do? Who's he? You know, all these big stars back there. So finally he comes out and he says hi to a bunch of people. And then he sees me and he goes like this, I go like that, and he goes, come here. And I, I wonder, you know, and he's so gentle and classy and all that. That's who he is, everybody else. So we hug and he goes, hey, baby. <laughs> And I just went, it was the secret handshake, you know. We're both still so amazed that we're doing this thing. Do you remember your first uh, time in the studio? Yes. Yeah, I played on a demo at Audio Arts Studio, Melrose and Gower. Um, and I played piano. I actually played tack piano. I don't remember. I think it was in A, and it was a, it was a, a chalypso, and it was a tack piano. And I loved the sound of that thing. And it was a, it was like a Jerry Fuller kind of a, you know, like traveling man or something like that, you know. But it was a, a, a sort of a wannabe, uh, you know kind of, you know, a little bit in that Ricky Nelson thing, you know. I that first time I ever walked in the studio. And I went, I, I do remember this, and I, I, that I went, this is better than being on stage because we can get this right. We get to listen back and do it again. It doesn't fly by, you know. I'm, I'm not, was that any good? What happened there? I mean, you know, because now you're onto the bridge, you know. It's like, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm like uh, specific. I'm made for what I do. I mean, really lucky, made for what I do. Down to the specificity of TV as opposed to movies. You know, I mean, I've got, if I have to play the same thing twice, I'm like, wow, this is now boring. You know, can't we do it different? You know, and not quite that bad, but close. So, you know, obviously, obviously ADD, you know, so it's, it's, it's like, 
how many, how can I juggle a bunch of things? You know, how can I do three shows at the same time? Oh, quite happily, you know, you know, really happy. It's like, I think it's what made me a decent pilot, you know, because flying in airplanes, multiple problem solving on multiple levels simultaneously, as is conducting to picture. You know, you got to look at the music, the clock, the screen, and the guys. Oh, hog heaven. You know, it's like, ding, 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 ding. Oh, God. you know, <laughs> perfect. You know, it's always cool to see how these guys got to where they are. And especially someone like this that's done so much stuff. And you see his name on so many shows. And you right. think, well, he's just been doing it forever. Like, I could never do something like that. Right. But you see that he thought kind of like that. He mm. wanted to get into it. He saw it from an outside perspective. And now he's in it yeah it's just so cool right it's crazy yeah and he didn't take it for granted either which is really cool too he's always pushing 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 to make the most out of that opportunity that he knows he was afforded so moving forward we're going to hear more from mike post um he's going to be talking some about his songwriting um some favorite projects that he did with uh pete carpenter and he talks a little bit about his friendship with john williams i wrote about 200 songs before i actually admitted to myself that you're a mediocre lyricist you're not very good at that part you know but some of the melodies and the changes and the way I approached it I thought this is decent this is damn good and then when I you know I became an arranger first and I loved orchestrating I just thought it was so intricate and so much fun to problem solve this way I just felt like it was just more fingers, you know, and learning about the orchestra, you know, through private lessons and and studying and friends, especially Pete Carpenter, uh, it was just, it just opened up so many magic doors, you know. So when somebody, you know, asked me, you know, I did this record called Classical Gas with Mason Williams, won a Grammy, 23 years old, you know, and then I become the music director of the Andy Williams show at 24. I mean, you know, now I got a 46-piece orchestra. Every week is a laboratory. I'm like, okay, now we're going to, now I'm going to mess around here, you know. And I was already, you know, there were two of us, Jimmy Webb and me, that had both cracked the door on orchestrated rock and roll you know it's like let's put the licks in the strings let's put the licks in the woodwinds or the and the french horns you know or the tuban horns you know let's oh boy you know now you know they let the hoodlums into the you know what are you guys doing in here you know i.e why why were we called the wrecking crew you know because we weren't like them we didn't come in a suit and tie except for Barney Kessel. You know, we came in, you know, now, and we were all gunfighters. We all had this attitude of, let's go. You know, we're the guys with the hit licks. Now, I was, you know, I'm third string maybe, fourth string. You know, I wasn't Mike Dacey. I was, certainly was not Larry Carlton or anything like that. But I was in that band. I was part of the wrecking crew. And I knew enough to know that I was never gonna be Carlton before I'd met him. I was never gonna be, I was never gonna be Barney Kessler or Howard Roberts or Tommy Tedesco, I wasn't. I had a thing that I did real well that was hot, but I, 
I was so ambitious musically that, you know, you're, the first couple of big time sessions with the wrecking crew, with the big boys, I was, you know, focused and concentrated, did my deal as well as I could. By the fourth or fifth or sixth week of this explosion, I'm going, well, that's not what the strings ought to play. That's a stupid bass line. Shouldn't it be? You know, and I got Gene Page hiring me and, and Nick Takaro and, you know, I mean, great arrangers, really great arrangers and producers. And I'm working for Sonny and a bunch of different guys. And I'm going, nah, this isn't the way it ought to go. So that insane amount of confidence, kind of just stupid. There was no basis for it except musical ambition. And I just wanted to get to be the guy that got to say how it ought to sound. And that was the motive. Money wasn't a motivator. It never has been. Isn't today. Um, fame is certainly not the motivator. I, I love the fact that, you know, I'm not famous. I love the fact that I have none of that, those problems. Um, music was the only motivator. So, um, it, it just, everything just broke perfect. Hit records led to music direction on TV, which led to more arranging. I got, I got to see the sun come up two or three nights a week, you know, mornings, just sitting there, and the pile of score was like, and I didn't even, I wasn't even tired. It was like, this is so you know, and I'd take my kids to school or go play with the kids and, and then sleep three hours, do it again. Let's go. And so thankful and grateful and enthusiastic. It's what gave me the courage to, you know, to interface with my idols, you know, especially Ray Charles. And, but, but Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, all these guys. And then... You know, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, you know, all these, you know, all the legit guys coming through going, Andy, who is this kid? You know, who the hell is this kid? And to have, you know, Sid Sharp and Vince DeRosa and, and Ray Kelly and Jesse Ehrlich sitting, you know, playing what I wrote, you know, and well, it's just, it was a dream come true. So my dear friend Pete had a lot of experience in putting music to film. Worked for Earl Hagen, worked a lot. Was a trombone player in the 20th Century Fox Orchestra under Alfred Newman and Lionel Newman, and so he really knew what he was doing. And we met at a golf tournament. He came up to me and said, you know, I'm a jazz guy. I've been in big bands all my life. And I said, well, I know who you are. You know, you have a terrific reputation. And he said, look, he said, me and all of my friends, we hate rock and roll. We hate it. He said, but I heard this record, Classical Gas, you made, and it's really good. And before I just become a curmudgeonly old guy, you know, and retire, he said, can we get together? I said, absolutely. And he said, maybe trade some information. I said, Pete, if I can learn one-tenth of what you know, it'll really help me. And I, I'd love to show you some of the stuff I'm that I like. And we just loved each other. I mean, we just absolutely loved each other. And that, so when somebody asked me, 
could I do the music for this movie of the week? I said, not without Pete Carpenter, I can't. And the minute I looked at film without music, I heard music. I went, well, it could be this. Pete said, that's good, let's do that. And then we did it together. Eight, 18 years together, writing in the same room almost all the time. He would play, I would write, I would play, he would write. Never had a contract, never had a handshake, never had an argument, not an unkind word between us till the day he died. Not one problem ever. We just laughed. We just had a ball. We just learned a lot. All of my friends thought I was the young hot guy with the hit licks and I was writing everything and carrying this old guy. All of his friends thought I was a hummer and that well, he's a rock and roll idiot. You know, he doesn't know what he's doing, you know, so. And Pete and I just laughed and went, fuck him. <laughs> you know, who cares? We're having a ball. And we did. We had a, if he was alive today, I would, it'd still be a partnership. Yeah. What so. was his background? Jazz, uh, trombone player, legit. And he, he had studied with a number of private um, composition uh, professors and teachers. And he opened up a lot of stuff to me, you know. I, I knew what linear counterpoint was. I knew what writing this way was. But I still said, what are the changes, Pete? He goes, it doesn't matter. We don't, you, you got a great bass line. Now let's just write lines. Now, whoa, look at the way that sounds. You know, it's just, it's like, I didn't even know who Nadia Boulanger was before I met Pete, you know, and then it just like really opened up all this. Look, there's only 12 of them. The 13th one's a repeat of the first one. So, Johnny and I, one time we were sitting talking and he was, he was going, well, you know, there's blues and greens and sometimes you, you know, he's being all ethereal. And I, I went, Johnny, he goes, yeah. I said, cut the shit, man. Write a really good line, then write another really good line. Maybe write another really good line. And, you know, set it up so it does blah, blah, blah. And he went, oh yeah, that's it. <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, that's it. Come up with a good lick. Send them out humming the thing. What? What the hell did you do? I don't know. I just rubbed it on. <laughs> kind of cool, I think. Anybody like it? That's John. You know, that's all of us. All the guys that walk in and go, you know, I mean, no, you didn't bring it down on a tablet from a mountain. There's only 12 of them. After Bach, we took the DC, we went back to the top. Guys, come on. You can get some new sounds in there. You can, you can put together some new, com you know, new combinations. But you, original composition? I don't think so. New. You haven't heard enough Bach. You, you simply have not heard enough Bach. Because he basically exhausted the compositional I mean, at least he defined the edges of the world, you know. I mean, it's like, okay, here, this is how you do this. You write. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you don't want to do it. It's just that get over yourself, you know, <laughs> really. So what are among the favorite projects you did with Pete? 
yeah, you know, um, Rockford Files for sure. Um, I don't know, we wrote, wrote a lot of music that was fun to write and that people seemed to like, you know. We, we just, we just had a ball doing it. You know, I don't think, none of them were bad. We worked for Cannell and nothing was bad working for my best friend, you know. Nothing was bad. We had great orchestras. We had, when we got so busy, one, one point we had 10 shows in one season. And we got so busy, we just had to hire other guys to write. And so we would come up with the lick of the week for the bad guy or for the dying baby or for the woman that got raped. And, but, you know, we'd come up with a couple of licks. We'd bring him in. We were sort of like, we're doing the A-team. So we'd bring in, you know, Frank Denson and, you know, uh, Jerry Grant and, you know, Ray Bunch and whoever, you know, I mean, the guys. And Walter Murphy and so many good guys. And they'd come in and we'd hand out cues, we'd hand out <laughs> the lick of the week. And then we'd show up and we never ghosted a note. Everybody got credit on the cue sheet, you know, at least shared credit with us. Everybody could use our themes as much as they wanted. Everybody got paid really well. And every, everybody in the orchestra knew who wrote what. And every producer knew who wrote what. End of story. No ghosting. Immoral. Don't put your name on somebody else's stuff. Don't take credit for something that another individual wrote. Wrong. It's wrong. Now, you got the gig. He wouldn't have been, okay, all right, we're going to make a deal. But it's your music. No, it's my lick. All right, great. You know. Like I say, not on a tablet, you know. So, uh, real proud of that. Real proud that I've never ghosted anything. One of the things I've been interested in personally is the instrumental hit records. And uh, I'd love to get your take on that. And of course, writing a couple of themes that became hit records. Yep. Playing them too. Yeah, right. That's me playing piano on Hill Street Blues. That's me playing guitar on Law and Order, you know, I mean. You know, I, <laughs> I used it unmercifully. A, because I walked into all the TV guys and went, do you have any idea what a hit record does for a show and what it pays me personally? So I'm not going to take any shit in this television crap. You know, it's coming through a little bitty speaker. You know, I'm, I'm in the rock and roll business. You know, in the meantime, I'm going back to the record guys and going, look, I really don't have to do this. The TV thing pays huge, you know, so I, and I just, what was the, I wasn't trying to make a lot of money at it. I was trying to have some control over the art part of it, you know. I was just trying to have people not screw around with my music too much, even though television is a completely collaborative deal. Um, having the hit records, I met Mancini for the first time uh, when I was doing the Andy Williams show. Now, the people in the book, in Andy's book, Henry, Jackie Elliott, Alan Ferguson, Dave Grusin, you know, I mean, the monster of all monsters. I mean, the, the arrangers in here were just like, I learned more just looking at the parts, conducting 
stuff that had been in Andy's book for years. I went, man, this is so good. How, how do I figure this part out? You know, and I'd grab the scores and go, wow. And Henry was really meaningful to me, really meaningful, because he was, he was the jazz version of what I wanted to be in the rock and roll deal. In other words, he was, you know, Peter Gunn, hit record, Mr. Lucky, hit record. How do you bridge that thing, you know? And, and his way of scoring was exactly what I wanted to do. In other words, come up with a lick, a theme, and write it until it drops. I mean, write it beyond when it drops. Revive it and keep writing it, you know? He just was the greatest at that. Rather than writing each cue like an island, he was one of the first guys to be completely thematic and, and make it make sense, make it be beautiful. And I just believe that it has uh, so much glue dramatically when you do that, you know? Look at Jaws, you know? I mean, look, it's just obvious, you know? So, I meet, I meet Mancini, and he was cordial and nice, and I compliment him on him, his stuff and everything, but it was quick, you know? So now, I do the Andy Williams show, and I never see him again, and then maybe five years later or something, I'm standing in line at a charity event called Italian Musicians Wives Charities. And it's downtown in some rectory of a church or something. And Tedesco and DeRosa and all the guys, you know, all the guys are there. And me and Peter are there and wives and everything. And I'm standing in line to get a, a script for a drink. So I'm standing in line and all of a sudden I, I notice, God, it's Hank. You know, a great big guy, about six, two or three. So I, I jumped the line a little bit, excuse me. I go, Henry. He goes, yeah? I said, Mike Post. He goes, God damn it. He goes, come here. And he goes, I'm such a jerk. I said, what, what? He said, I owe you a phone call. I said, not that I'm aware of. He goes, yeah, I do. He said, um, when I heard Rockford Files, you know, six months ago, and then I saw what you did with the record, he said, I, I needed to call you up on the phone and say two words to you. And I said, what? And he said, hold my hands. Well, I said, look deep into my eyes. I did, and he went, you're next. And I went, that's the kindest thing anybody's ever done. I, said, I mean, I got big tears in my eyes. You know, I went, Henry, I hope you're right. And if you are, I hope I do half as good as you. And I hope I, if I'm successful that I, I wear it like you've worn your success and I improve like you have. And he goes, you will, you're next. And I went, I went back and to said, Pete, listen to what, she goes, he might be right, you know. I went, well, you know. I mean, as it is and as it happened, I just don't have that performance gene or that fame gene at all. I don't give a shit about it, so I wasn't willing to, you know, I wasn't willing to go on the road and, and, you know, I just, there were more TV shows to do once I met Bochco and Dick Wolf and all that, you know, through a channel. There's just too much work to try and be famous. So I had hits, but I, I never had hit albums and I never had a hit act. And, um, and it doesn't seem to be, I don't even know what a hit record is anymore. I don't think you actually have hit records, maybe. Or maybe you do, I don't know. 
certainly a lot of people making a lot of good music and recording it. I just don't know if it's the, if the world is the same. It obviously isn't. So, you know, I don't know what it means. It, it's, it's defined a different, different way. Well, I just absolutely love the fact that we can play this full interview with Mike Post because uh, so oftentimes with the uh, the NAM Oral History Program, with the interviews, we only play like a little small segment or we use it for uh, in collaboration with other people talking about the same thing. But to be able to play the whole interview, especially from a guy like him who's just so passionate, it's just fantastic and very insightful. One of the things that I really appreciate is that story about John Williams, you know, uh, just his buddy, you know, from down the street and uh, they hung out together and he went and did his sort of niche in creating uh, television theme songs and John went in his niche of, I don't know, making uh, motion picture movies. <laughs> um, and so the fact that they saw each other and it's like, you know, kind of just giving a heads up, hey, how's it going, you know, kind of <laughs> thing. It's just a remarkable part that they recognize where they came from, you know, never lost touch from that and appreciated where they are and you know just doing their own thing so now they're on panels together when uh people want to hear about okay how's how does making movie music differ from television those are the two guys you want to talk to so uh kind of an amazing journey that they both went on together and i just love that that uh, that enthusiasm and story that mike told us so uh, we are going on now to what what segment of his interview? So this is the last part of his interview, but I'm a little confused. He talks a little bit about Great American Hero, and I'm not actually sure what that is. Could you? Yes, I'm not going to sing the theme song, although most of you out there probably are already humming it. It was the number one song on the pop charts, uh, even though it was a television theme song. And I don't think that's happened too many times. I remember SWAT was on the charts, but it didn't get anywhere close to number one. And this was basically a, a television kind of comedy show about this bumbling guy who was walking in the park, as I recall, and this beam from a outer space uh, rocket or something. <laughs> drops this package he opens it up and he puts his suit on and he becomes a hero and not a very um eloquent uh you know <laughs> a, he's still bumbling you know yeah. he still falls and crashes into walls and stuff like that but he's a nice guy and he's just trying to do the right thing and being a, a superhero uh but the theme song that mike wrote uh, really worked well to be a pop hit as well so uh i think we're going to hear mike talking about that so aside from Pete, you know, my whole life has been a series of big brothers. And hopefully I've handed that down and been a big brother to other guys. I know I have. I've tried to be, and, and I know I have. And, you know, BMI gave me the mentor award a couple of years ago, and I think, you know, there's, I, I've tried to hand it down. but. Really, I've tried to hand it down because it was handed down to me so great. So the guy, you know, I met Steve Cannell on a beach where I almost got in a fight, blah, blah, blah. There's, that's another story. And he said to me, after spending about a week with him down in Balboa, I was 24 at the time, and he said, you know, I, if I ever get a chance to sell a script 
and convince a producer, I think your music would be great in TV. And I said it, bullshit, I'm not doing that. It's a little bitty speak. I'm in a rock and roll business, man. I'm a rock and roll record producer, arranger. I'm, that's what I do. I make hit records. So, of course, we best friends until the day he died. And all we ever did was give each other a maximum amount of bullshit about, you know, <laughs> what would have happened if we'd actually fought that day? What, what, you know, what would have happened if, if he'd have listened to me and not convinced me to, to do television music and, you know, what, what, what if would it? So at any rate, we had had a bunch of successes. Rockford Files, blah, blah, black sheep, whatever. And then he goes on his own and becomes the deficit financer. And one of the first shows was The Greatest American Hero. So he says to me, you know, he shows me his script and we go out to lunch. I read the script and we go out to lunch. I go, it's great. It's really great. And he's saying Bob Culp and Bill, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and I went, oh, yeah, that's, this is going to be good. This is going to be really, he said, it'll be funny as shit. The guy can't fly right, loses the instructions, blah, blah, blah. So he said, so let's do a song. And I go, a song? He goes, yeah, let's do a song. He says, let's have another hit record. Do a song. A song? I'm thinking, about losing the instructions? Are you an idiot? What, how do I do a song? He goes, I don't know. Don't you know any good lyricists? I said, gee, I know this guy named Stephen Geyer who's just brilliant. He's a kind of a folky, jazzy guy, really good guitar player, and he's brilliant. He said, well, why don't we talk to him? So I set up a thing. I take Geyer over to his office and have him read the script and go over and Steve says, what, can, what do you think? He goes, I'd love to be involved and I'd love to do something. And I said, what, what approach? He said, well, I think make it a parallel with love. You know, make it a romantic thing, you know. And he said, do you have any, have you started on anything? And he said, believe it or not, I have. And Steve went, okay. He said, I just gave it to you. Came along, huh? He said, believe it or not. He goes, oh, that's great. He goes, what else? He said, I'm not going to tell you. Wait till I do it. You know, so Guy and I just went in a room. Didn't take two hours, you know. You know, it's a little, and it's kind of, kind of Michael McDonald-ish, you know. It was all in that whole vibe that we were all, you know, crisscross and everybody was messing around with the same kind of, you know, sort of deal. So I was doing it too. And I'd already been producing Joey Scarberry. And so, and, and Cannell knew what he sounded like. And he, he said, Scarberry? And I said, yep. Smoke Tree, which was a little studio out in Chatsworth, was where I was working. And uh, it was, it just, you know, it's like every hit record. Most of them just they just go like that. They're just magic. It's just like, I, heard, I, I saw a, a little clip on 60 Minutes of an Ed Bradley interview of Dylan, and Dylan told the truth. Bradley says, you know, all these albums and so many songs and so, so much semi, how did you, let's just talk about freewheeling. And Dylan went, okay. He said, how did you come up with, how did you do that? 
He goes, I don't know. I honestly don't know. It, it's kind of magical. And he goes, I don't know why those songs are what they are and have lived so long. And some of the later stuff was hit or miss. And then it was, yeah, oh, yeah, like a wellness turn. Okay, yeah, yeah, just like a, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. He goes, I don't know. He goes, from my viewpoint, you just do it. I don't know. So the truth is, I mean, I can, here's the magic. Here's the magic. If still today, if I play B flat over F to F, you can call it a plagal cadence, you can call it an ah man, you can, there's a bunch of, okay. And you can voice it, you know, a few different ways, right? But always I hear a parallel sixth, right? And I hear that, you know, the F stay the F, right? I know all the architecture. I know all the engineering behind that. Why does that sound that way? Why does that make me feel that way, done in certain contexts? I don't know. It just does. It's art. You know, you can talk about it and intellectualize about it till you're blue in the face, and then it comes down to, I don't know. It's art. You know, it's magic. It is. I know, I'm 72. I've been doing it for a living since I was 16. I'm, I, I know a lot about it architecturally. I don't know anything about it. I don't know why it does what it does. I don't know... You know, how do you put any words on Ray Charles? How do you put words on that? You know, how do you put words on Dvorak, on the New World Symphony? How do you even talk about that? I don't know. You know, I mean, I can, I can talk to you intellectually about it. I can tell you, you know, what the nuts and bolts are and how they put that thing up, you know. I can't tell you why it makes... The, the indentation emotionally that it does. I don't know. Magic. Art. Well said. That's very cool. I wanted to ask you a little bit about gear because I think it's interesting that you were experimenting with electronic instruments and synthesizers and stuff at sort of the dawn of a lot of that explosion. And of course used it, Rockford Files, stuff like that. Can we talk a little bit about how you embrace some of those technologies? Hmm. Yeah. Talk about fortunate. I mean, talk about really, really fortunate. I came in on this dividing line, cusp, right? It was us and them, you know? Well, if, if you're not a classical guy or a jazz guy, you're not worth a shit. Really? Did you never hear Chuck go, you know, I mean, come on. That's just good no matter what color your skin is, no matter what part of the country you're from, no matter who you are, that's just good, buddy. I'm sorry. That's just good. Oh, no, it's not. It's fucking rock and roll. You're an idiot. You're closed. You're limited. So having, you know, 
kind of come to a little bit to fruition, come to the party with that going on, I swore I was going to try, no matter how scared I was, no matter how much I was like, I don't understand that or I don't get that, that I would never be that guy. So, and, and Pete was, it was hard for Pete, really hard for Pete. You know, when the, when DX7s first appeared, you know, when all that stuff was brand, when, you know, Sinclair and all that stuff, you know, he'd go, oh, Jesus. You know, that sounds like a farfisa. I go, yeah, I'm not quite. It's a little better. I said, it's not right yet. It isn't, it isn't the guys yet. Nothing sounds like 36 violins, you know, for God's sake. Still doesn't, by the way. It doesn't, but it, it's, it's never out of tune. And it's a keystroke away and manipulated correctly. It's beautiful. It's fantastic. Oh, I don't get to stand in front of the guys and do something that I'm really accomplished at? Tough shit. Nothing, especially art, never stands still. It is a moving target. And if you're not moving with it, then you're the target. So, you know, when I first, uh, uh, Phillips Studio in, in Memphis, Tennessee, guy named James Brown, white kid, what is that? So it's called a mini Moog. I went, wow, there's no patching going on. He goes, no, no, it's just a bunch of, it's just, you just do this with these big fat. I went, wow. What can I? So after the thing, I just sat there for a couple hours going, this is so bitching. This is fun. This is a cool little axe, you know, limited as hell, but cool. So. If you're embracing that stuff, you know, there was a cue in the Rockford File um, pilot. And we got a call from the dub stage, from the mixers, going, something's wrong here. We got this really cool, spooky cue, and there's these, there's these things. We don't even know what instrument is playing this stuff, but it's, it, it's, it's distorting. I went, yeah, it's supposed to. It's, suppo it's supposed to make you uncomfortable. You're supposed to be scared. This is a, what is it? I said, it's a volume pedal with a fuzz tone and a guitar. What's a fuzz tone? <laughs> Truth. And I said, well, okay. You know, the rascals have come to the legit side to play. <laughs> you know, we're you know, we're here. We're here. Exactly. <laughs> they let the maniacs in. <laughs> they let them take over the asylum. You know. So, you know. I mean, you know, when urban poetry first started to become a thing, I was that guy. I was like, oh man, you know. Dr. Dr. Dre's going to talk about his music? Wait a second. The definition of music, right? Melody, harmony, rhythm. That's the definition of music. Going... Well, doesn't that feel good? Yeah, I mean, it's a keystroke. I mean, yeah, yeah, it feels good. Wait a second. 
maybe there's a way to use that. What if I, what if I do that and I bring in some stuff already pre-recorded and then I take this orchestra and I put it on that and that's part of the cue. Wow, Picos, hey, we're sounding different than all these other guys. What about, I said, Pete, what if we standardize the way we sound from group four to universal to, to evergreen to every studio we're using? We've got so many shows. It's, we've got to make sure we're, each show has its oral identity. He goes, I said, but we have to standardize our thing. I said, let's carry a bunch of keyboards and electronic drums. And he goes, that's a good idea. That's a very good idea. It won't be so much the studio. It'll be what we're carrying around. I went, so, you know, I'm not saying I'm any genius or anything, but at least I knew it was a moving target and I knew I had to be m moving some kind of way or else I was going to be that guy again of, I don't do it that way, I do it this way. Really? That's like saying there's only one good way to be a good person. Follow my religion, ladies and gentlemen. And, you know, it's like, it's music. There's a million ways to sound good. It's hard not to sound good, as a matter of fact, in my opinion. You know, uh, so let's just pick a way. Every cue I write and every cue that Pete and I wrote have two prerequisites. We got to like it. And the guy that hired us, that made the film, has got to love it. So as long as you go at it that way collaboratively and you stay open, you know, I want to know, you know, the most important word in the English language is next, next, you know, all, all that stuff behind you is behind you, you know, next. So what, what a wonderful time it is, right? It's, it's the best it's ever been in the history of film for composers putting their music to film or television. There's more gigs, there's more stuff being produced. Now, you, some of the old guys will go, yeah, and every guy with a rig thinks he's a composer. Well, he is. He is. You know, and it date, dates back a long time. Are you trying to tell me that Simon, what Simon and Garfunkel did for The Graduate was not brilliant? But it wasn't score. Yes, it was. It informed the picture. It made it more dramatic. It gave you a feeling. It, it's score. It isn't traditional. It isn't Jerry Goldsmith. It isn't you know, Dave Grusin. But it's score. So all those guys that talk shit about, you know, this guy because he doesn't read and this guy because he doesn't actually orchestrate, you know what? You people are all stupid. Listen to the music. That's the only, that is the litmus test to this. Open up your ears, shut your mouth, open up your ears, stop being prejudiced, prejudged. You know, that's like the guys that told me, oh, you can't play that stuff. You know, your skin's white, you know, you can't play that stuff. Really? Really? You know, try that with uh, Edgar Winter, you know? I mean, <laughs> <or> Johnny. <laughs> try that. You know, they don't know they're not black, they're, you know. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's just, it's the same deal.
That's really cool. What what keyboard were you playing on Hill Street Blues? A uh, piano, oh, just sorry. a just a regular piano, uh, a Beckworth, out at Smoke Tree, and that's all that is. You know, it's a little compression. In fact, a lot of compression, and you know, and it's simple. It's simple. If I played it, it's simple, but but I I do honestly believe that I played it as as well as I could, perfectly as well as I could. And, and I don't, and I wouldn't want anybody else to play any different. I like what I did. It took me about three or four hours to, I've talked to James Taylor one time about, you know, some of his vocals, and because I know what a maniac he was before, did you know, when, when we had to cut tape to get half of a word, you know, cut a whole 24 track to, you know, <laughs> To be able to overdub without ruining that, or you know, and bouncing and all the stuff we went through to get things really right, you know. And James is—he's a perfect singer. I mean, he's so in tune, and he's just, you know. And as good as he is as as a singer, he's actually better as a player, because I I've seen him in concert maybe 35 times, and I've seen him when he was fucked up and when he was sick and, and having problems. I've never heard him make a mistake. He, now, what he plays is very, um, it, it is very, um, it's a narrow um, railroad that he travels on, but it's perfect, and it's beautiful, and it has his signature, and, you know, I just think he's a genius, and so I, I tried to, in what I did, I tried for that kind of, of, you know, it's like guys used to say, oh, oh, Toto, they're too clean, they're too perfect, they're too... Really? Really? Let me be that clean. Let me be that perfect. That's pretty... Now, I understand the difference between that and, and you know, some things that are, you know, hoochie-coochie, you know, that, that and, you know, BB which is just all heart, and it doesn't matter if it's a little out of tune, it doesn't matter if the time grows and comes back, you know, in fact, it's supposed to. And, you know, that's the study of Professor Longhair and Mac and New Orleans, and, you know, that is, it breathes, it's supposed to. But, you know, go listen to Life in a Fast Lane, go listen to, you know, come on, guys, you know, it's, there's a lot of ways to be good. There's, forget all those rules, it's just bullshit, you know, there are no rules. You know, it's like when I worked with Eddie uh, Van Halen, you know, it's like, there's an example of just pure genius firepower. A good story, maybe this be a good story for the NAMM guys. Carlton called me up one day, he said, you have to come up here. So I right away went up to, you know, we're dear friends, you know, really good friends. And yet he was a little kid. I hired him when he was 17, and I was already a made guy, and, you know. But we, I knew how good this guy really was, and he knew I knew. And, and so we're really comfortable with each other. Now he's married, and he's doing good, and he's got, you know. And he goes, sit down. And he pulls out, his, picks up his 335, and he goes, I went, what? He went, I went, oh, f and I 
Where'd you get that? He said, there's this kid from Pasadena with this band. And he said, he's not just doing that, he's doing a bunch of other shit. He's actually playing with two hands for real. I went, no bullshit. And he goes, no. I said, wow, really? What's his name? He goes, I don't know, some Dutch name, Van something. Or I went, wow. He goes, yeah, new ball game. I went, yeah. I said, I've never heard, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I know Thumbs Carlisle does that, but man, that's crazy. <laughs> and you got to work with them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Genius. I mean, just a genius. Just God smiling, you know. Awesome. Yeah. When did you get into guitars? About 15. And there's a real simple reason. And I said it out loud. I think I said it to Rabini. But, or maybe to Dale Holcomb. But probably to Rabini. You know, and Rabini was a monster. You know, had so much classical background. I mean, had great facility. And I'm just this kid, you know, that can do some stuff, you know. And um, we were sitting at the piano at a rehearsal doing something together. And he was playing one thing, I'm playing another. And I said, you know what's wrong with this thing? He goes, what? I said, you can't bend it. He went, yeah. He goes, you can, you can slide off of them and give the appearance. I said, no, yeah, it's not like this. And that, that really was it. You can't bend the son of a bitch. You know, that's before you had that. <laughs> you, you know, so. What was your first guitar? A uh, gut string, a Spanish guitar. And then right away I bought an electric within two or three months. And it was, start, I started with Carter Family, I started folk styles. You know, hammer-ons, boom, beater, doom, bam, you know. And, uh, and then I learned to finger, I learned to Travis pick really early. Really early. You know, and uh, my friendships have, you know, been a big part of my gr growing. You know, hearing a guy like Lenny and being able to, and then being so, so close to Herb Peterson, you know, and seeing what pure banjo genius and vocal genius is all about, you know, and Herb turning me on to, you know, to so much music because he was such a bluegrass expert, such an expert, really helped me. You know, really opened up, you know, a lot of dark doors and, whoa, Jim and Jesse, are you shitting me? Oh, bump, 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 bump. Whoa, look at that on that little mandolin. How the hell? What the hell? That's as, that's as magic as Scruggsine, you know. If you really sit down and look at that roll, it makes no sense whatsoever. You know, not to a Travis Picker. It's like, 
what? That's the top note? <laughs> you know, that's screwed up. Oh, you lead with this one? Uh, that don't make any sense. <laughs> you know? So, you know, it, it just more uh, evidence of the magic. You know, I, my life has been a series of that. Imagine, you know, my wedding 20 some odd years, 21, almost 21 years ago in New Orleans, and Sonny Landreth played at our party the night before the wedding, and I just, now I'd heard him, but now I can get up there close and go, what the f are you doing? You know, t I mean, the slide is the slide. Guys, that's just a moving nut, right? That's what it is. No, he picks it up part of it and he makes a little chord behind it. He calls it ghosting. And I produced an album on him with dear friends. I go, Sonny, show, show, what the hell is it? He goes, well, you just, I go, I guess if I sat with Yo-Yo and I go, well, I'm, you're not supposed to pull your thumb out of the back of the thing and do something, are you? That, I mean, I know about the cello. You're not, well, you're not supposed to, but I'm doing it. You know, I got five fingers. Why not use them all? <laughs> you know, I got these hands like this and I, you know, and I'm strong, you know, there. <laughs> you know, now I'll pick that one up and then I'll pack this one up and then. You know, Sonny's fifth finger on his right hand works. It works. It, it plays. It works. Now, you know, all right, the classical guys can do it. The flamenco, some of the flamenco guys, can, nobody else in the world can do that. Nobody that's, you know, sounds like him. <laughs> so. Very cool. Well, Mike, this has been great. Thanks so much for taking time mm -hmm. for us. So happy to do it. And, you know, as I, you know, when they first called about it. I said, geez, I'd just like to be able to get some tickets and go to NAM every year. You know? so, <laughs> so they said, well, do this. I said, okay. That's You're great. In. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that you got what you needed. Definitely. Thank so, you so much. You're welcome. Okay, so that uh, concludes the interview with Mike Post, and there's so many other things that we didn't cover. I'm kind of hoping Mike will do a second interview with us. Uh, one of the things I want to ask him is um, Pete Townsend from The Who in, I think, 2006, wrote a song called Mike Post's Theme, which <laughs> <laughs> I want to get his response to that. <laughs> Thanks, you guys. I really appreciate uh, this opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. Uh, as always, if you like what you heard, feel free to leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to. We always appreciate that feedback. And tune in again in two weeks for another episode of the Music History Project. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins. Michelle Shedler. And Dan Del Fiorentino. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, you can send those over to library at nam.org.